You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 50. Uh, This particular question was asked to me by one of my patients last week, and my answer was so amazingly incredible that I decided that I had to share it today. Uh, Just kidding. But we were actually talking about it, and I gave the answer, and immediately I I said, this should be a podcast topic because it's a question that I do get frequently. Um, And so I wanted to share it all with you guys, or share it with all of you guys um, today. The question was, why do I continue to get headaches when I read and I still suffer a lot from neuro fatigue when I do cognitive tasks? So this is probably like, I don't know how many of you out there, maybe like 85% of you out there right now are probably nodding your head saying, yeah, I get headaches when I read or do cognitive activities and I also have neuro fatigue where I get drained and exhausted super early um, you know, into my day or when I'm doing any type of cognitive task, okay? This person also has difficulty concentrating um, on what she has read. So when she's reading, uh, she's not able to concentrate on that material and also has difficulty retaining the information what she has read. So obviously a very common problem and majority of you out there are probably again nodding your head and saying, yep, this is me, this is exactly what I go through. I'm going to start off with a bold statement here. The majority of you that believe you have memory problems don't actually have memory problems. Okay? So I'm going to say that again. The majority of people with concussion that believe that they have memory impairment or memory problems don't actually have problems with their memory. And this is a conversation I've had with a number of neuropsychologists who find the same thing, is that they don't actually test or have any type of true memory impairment. What it actually is, is more along the lines of inattentiveness, um, distraction, uh, as well as um, just being overwhelmed with a lot of things kind of happening at the same time, okay? So when you're thinking about a lot of things, doing a lot of things, you tend to forget little things. And But that's not a true memory impairment. So one of the examples my patient actually asked, said yesterday, I was going through the symptom score with her as I do on, on a daily basis to try and figure out where my patients are at that day. She reported uh, that she did, she was having memory impairments. And I said, what do you mean by memory impairment? Describe memory impairment. And she says, well, you know, just the day-to-day stuff. I, you know, I walk into a room and I can't remember why I came in there. You know, I decide, oh, I need to go grab this thing. I go down to the room to get it and I walk in and I go, what was I here to grab again? And then have to retrace my thoughts to then remember what it was, okay? Now, she remembers what it was eventually, That's not a memory impairment. The problem is as she's walking down the stairs, going into the room, she's thinking about other things and then gets into the room and goes, okay, why was I here again, right? So it's inattentiveness. It's not a memory impairment. The other one that I get frequently is, oh, my partner asked me to pick up something from the grocery store on my way home from work. You know, they sent them a text at one o'clock in the afternoon. They come home from work at four and they forget to pick up the avocados from the grocery store. That's not memory impairment because you can remember that your partner asked you to pick it up. You just forgot in the time as you're driving home. Why? 
because your self-talk that's going on inside your mind is not focused on the avocados, but it's probably focused on something else. Okay, it's focused on what you did today, a meeting you had at work, a conversation you had with a friend, whatever it may be, you're just not focused on the avocados. You didn't forget, the memory is still there, it's the inattentiveness at the time, okay? So when you get home and your partner says, hey, where are the avocados, you go, oh shit. And you remember immediately that they asked you to get avocados. So that is not a true memory impairment, you don't have blank spots where you're missing periods of time. You're not, you don't have dementia. You know what the date is. You know what the week is. You know what the time of day is, right? You know what year it is, right? You have basically inattentiveness. And a lot of that comes down to what I'm going to talk about in the second half of this, but a thing that's called the default mode network, which is kind of your self talk. Okay. All right. Now everyone watching this is probably thinking, this is me. I forget stuff all the time and it's due to my concussion. Or you'll say, I never had this before, but I only have it now. I'll explain that as we go, okay? So let's start off with the first part of this question, which is, why am I getting headaches when I read? Specifically when I read. Not necessarily just all cognitive activity in general, but specifically when reading. The first thing you have to understand is a concept called referred pain. So referred pain is a pain that's felt somewhere in your body that actually originates from somewhere else. The most common or well-known example of this would be a heart attack. Okay, When you're having a heart attack, you can have pain in the chest, but also frequently people feel pain down the left arm or pain into the jaw. Right? There's nothing wrong with your left arm. There's nothing wrong with your jaw but it's how your brain perceives pain. Your brain just goes, there's something really bad going on over here and I don't exactly know where it is, but that's how you feel it. And oftentimes that might be the only sensation you have is this pain in your left arm, but it's actually coming from your heart. So referred pain is a pain that's from a location that actually presents in a different location. Your neck, the muscles and joints in your neck can refer pain into your head. Okay? A lot of headaches are actually neck-related headaches. They get diagnosed, misdiagnosed as migraine headaches or um, you know, other types of headaches, but a lot of times they're just neck-related headaches. And it's funny because patients will come in saying, oh yeah, I'm a migraine sufferer, and you ask them about the, the character of their headaches, and they're not migraine at all, and you start poking around on their neck, and you're able to recreate the headache they feel just by pushing on certain muscles and joints in their neck. Okay, so that's the first thing you have to understand is that your neck can create headaches through this concept of referred pain. Oftentimes these patients don't even have any pain in their neck because they only feel it as this headache, right? I have this headache that's right in the front of my head that's right here that increases when I read or I feel pain in my eyes or right behind my eyes when I read or on one side or on the other side um, or on the sides of my head or right on the top of my head. Some people will describe this sensation of a screwdriver being poked through the top of their head. Just based on the location of where you tell me your headache is, I know exactly what muscles are likely to be causing it and I can go and check those and then determine what the cause of your headache may be. Now, every time, so that's referred pain. That's concept number one. Concept number two is anytime your eyes move side to side, up and down, any direction at all, it also sends a signal to the brain that sends signals to the muscles in your neck to engage. And the reason for that is it's probably a biological evolutionary thing where something moves off to the peripheral vision aspects, you know, something moves off to my right side, 
your left, my right. My eyes are going to look at it, but I'm also going to want to maybe turn my head at the same time. So anytime my eyes go to the right, all of the muscles in my neck that are directed or, or assigned the job of turning my head right will engage in preparation for that. They might not turn my head, but they're ready to. Okay? And if you take your fingers and you put them right up here in the base of your skull, like just below, your skull kind of dips down into your neck, and you feel right at the very top of your neck, Sam's doing it right now. If you put your fingers up there, everyone watching or listening right now, take your fingers, run them down the back of your skull, right to where it dips into a divot into the back of your neck, and then just, just with your eyes, look side to side, back and forth, and you will feel muscles twitching, Sam felt it, you will feel muscles twitching under your fingers the side to side motion those muscles right there and that's exactly what I'm talking about as you move your eyes side to side those muscles engage in preparation to turn your head if they need to so that's how your eyes and your neck are connected because you're you know you're set up in a physiological way you don't do things step by step right when you go to throw a ball the first thing you do is weight transfer and then turn your obliques and everything you don't throw a ball just with your arm you, there's a, it's a whole body motion but it's all coordinated and it, you do it without thinking so it's the same thing your eyes are moving back and forth every muscle in your neck that is designed to turn your head in that same direction engages when you look up muscles that tilt, tilt your head up will go as well when you look down, same thing. So any eye motion is gonna have a neck component to it to make sure that movement is coordinated and quick if you need it to be, okay? Now, so if we have a dysfunctional muscle or a muscle that's super, super tight and painful, you might not even feel the pain here, but you might feel it as a headache. With a concussion, there's always gonna be some element of whiplash involved. Just because concussion is caused by acceleration and deceleration of the brain, Whiplash is acceleration, deceleration of the neck. The head and the neck are obviously attached. So anytime the head's going to undergo acceleration, deceleration enough to cause concussion, you're also going to have mild strain injury to the ligaments, joints, muscles of the neck itself. So we have the injury that happens simultaneously to both parts. Now when you're reading, your eyes are moving back and forth. You may have some dysfunction or whatever in, in, in your neck. And now, as those muscles are firing back and forth, as you're reading the lines, they start to refer pain into your head. So now the muscles back here, the inferior oblique muscles, their referral is sides of the head, forehead, and right behind the eyes. So people will describe this like eye pain when I read. I get eye pain when I read. It may be one side, it may be both sides, okay? But oftentimes, those headaches are actually related to neck issues and it's only because you're reading and your eyes are moving back and forth that you start to get those headaches that come up. Now this could also be things like eye strain, right? You may need to see an optometrist get a prescription update. This may be due to blood flow impairments. You may have increased cognitive load while reading. That's a possibility. But I find that often the most under appreciated and overlooked condition in this is a simple neck issue that can be easily treated with a little bit of rehab and a little bit of tissue work um, and and some um, uh, adjustments if uh, if you have somebody who has a skill set to do that so this type of stuff can be very helpful very quickly for people that have headaches due to reading all right so that's the first part of the question 
Now, when we get into, I'll just go back to my patient. So this patient, we'd already ruled out blood flow issues because we'd put her on the treadmill and she passed no problem. She's been exercising every day since. Fine, right? So it's not a blood flow issue. It's not a, it's not a load problem. Uh, eye stuff, she's been doing vision rehab for, for months now, uh, improving in all aspects of that. And I haven't seen her in a couple months and she came in and I'm, I'm, her neck was a mess. And so I'm, I'm guessing that's gonna be the culprit of this. So neck causes, well, neck moves when eyes move and dysfunction in the neck then recreates, causes headache, referral pain, and you can feel it in multiple areas, okay? Different muscles will cause pain in different areas, so depending on when your headache, where your headache is, you can easily kind of track it and figure out where it's coming from. If you start pushing and digging on some of those muscles and you can recreate that headache, well then you've got it, okay? These muscles also in the back right here, these inferior oblique muscles are also very responsible for feelings of dizziness and unsteadiness. There's been studies looking at uh, acupuncture. If you can, you can sink an acupuncture needle into the inferior oblique muscles and actually cause somebody to feel dizzy. When they're face down, they feel that everything starts to spin on them is because you've stimulated that muscle. The muscles and joints in your neck tell you so much about where you are in space. So if you think about it, you have this dysfunctional, you know, upper neck part from the injury that you may have had that's now really stiff, tight, sore, whatever it may be. And as you're reading, you're causing those muscles to fire, 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 fire. They start to refer pain into your head. And sometimes when you come up from reading, you're like, whoa, I feel really messed up. My eyes are really weird. I feel dizzy, right? It's the same thing. You've been activating your eyes and which is then in turn activating your neck which is then creating sensations of dizziness headaches all that stuff so a lot of this stuff could be driven purely from the neck issues that happen at the same time okay so that was the initial explanation because we'd already ruled out some of the other stuff that it could possibly be so I'm not saying to all of you out there that it's definitely a neck issue because it's only one component of what could be a bigger clinical picture but oftentimes the most overlooked component that I find is neck issues okay now what about the neuro fatigue so when I read I not only get headaches but I feel absolutely you know, exhausted, absolutely wiped, okay? Now this person has been off work also for, uh, I think about a year now, or maybe even longer. Um, and so there's been a lot of, um, we'll say like inactivity in a way, because it's like when you're not working, you don't have that, you're not constantly using your brain on an ongoing basis. You know, you do a lot of like, you know, rest and things like that generally is the advice that you get. So you're not using your brain. So we have to think about this in two different ways. Um, well, there's probably more than two different ways, but here's the two ways that I find I most frequently think about this is think about it as if um, you're, you're out of shape. So we have to think of this almost like a deconditioning. So you have a cognitive deconditioning. You now have been told to avoid work, avoid school, avoid cognitive activity. Anything that increases your symptoms is, is somehow thought to be bad. Okay, that's old school thinking and unfortunately many healthcare providers are still dis still putting out this, this falsehood that you can actually you know, do damage by you know, looking at a, a screen. That's not it's not true. It's never been proven in any type of scientific evidence. And in fact, a lot of evidence now is coming out showing that rest beyond a two to two to three day period is actually detrimental for you. So, and the, the reason is this is because when you pull back, you actually become deconditioned. 
when you're not using your brain on a daily basis, you're not scheduling things, you're not answering emails, you're not talking on the phone, you're not um, you know, doing math problems, you're not doing all this stuff, then all of a sudden a month or two later you try to get back into it, well now you're if it's at work, you're out of the conversations at work, you're out of the loop at work, you're not, you don't know what projects are going on, you don't know where you fit in, you're trying to kind of jump in halfway and try to figure it all out and you don't know where it is. So then you feel like you're confused. You feel like you don't know what's going on, you feel lost, you feel like you don't know how to do your own job. Same thing with school, you fall behind a couple math units trying to catch up to everything because everything's built on itself now and now you don't know where you're at. So now, Think about this as a potential deconditioning thing. The example that I frequently use to explain this or describe this to patients is physical fitness. If I were to um, go to the gym and I haven't been to the gym in two to three months and I try to load the bar up and do exactly what I used to do, right? I go down, I go, well, I used to be able to lift, you know, this. So I go and I, I lift it, I try, I used to be able to do three sets of 12 at, you know, 175 pounds. So I'm gonna load that up and do that again. Well, when I go to do that, I may get to six reps, you know, and then I go, oh my God, am I ever gonna think that like, oh my God, I'm damaged or, you know, anything like that? Well, no, I'm deconditioned. I've lost strength and it can happen very quickly. So now the next day after my first workout in months, am I going to be sore? Am I going to be beat up? Am I going to feel like crap? Am I going to feel exhausted? Well, yeah. So it's the same thing now when people go from doing nothing for three months, try to jump back into work, feel that they're lost and confused and can't cope and get symptomatic with work, and then the next day feel drained, exhausted, etc. It's like you jumped in to the same workout you used to do and now you're, you know, you're upset or shocked that it was tough. That's kind of how this, th this stuff goes, right? So when I'm getting back into the gym, I'm not going to load up 175 pounds and try to do three sets of 12. I'm going to maybe put 100 pounds on it and start there, okay? And I'm going to build myself up to what I used to be able to do. The other example of this is a, an easy one to get. I am not a runner. Look at my body. I am not a runner. I can't run. I can lift weights. I can't run. I mean, I can run, but I'm just not very good at it. So if I were to say tomorrow, I'm going to go run a marathon, I would literally get one-fifth of the way through a marathon, probably even less, and collapse dead. Okay? But if I made the goal of a marathon in a year and I started myself at a 3K pace, and then up to a 5K, and then eventually got myself to running 10K, and then got myself up to a half marathon, and kept building, I could eventually run that marathon. Am I gonna be sore after my first 3K? Probably. Am I gonna be winded? Hell yeah. Is it gonna be hard? Yep. But eventually it won't be hard anymore. And then I can do my 5K. Am I gonna be sore after the first time I up my kilometers? Yep. Is it gonna suck the next day? Yep. Am I gonna have you know, I'm gonna walk like Frankenstein for two or three days after, yep, okay. But if, I, if my reaction was to say, oh, 3K, I felt I was really winded and I was really sore the next day, so now I'm not gonna do 3K anymore, I'm actually gonna start with 1K and I'm gonna pull myself back. That's what a lot of concussion patients do. Oh, that gave me a headache, I'm not doing that anymore. Oh, that made me feel dizzy, I'm gonna come back here. You can never get better by doing less <laughs> 
right? I can't get myself back up to 175 on the bench press or let's say a 300 pound squat if every time I do squats and I get sore or I feel exhausted after my workout that I actually lower my weight because then I'm down to lifting nothing. I'm never gonna get to be able to go back to a full day of work if every time I go in for an hour, I say, well, an hour was too much. I'm only gonna do 20 minutes tomorrow. Well, 20 minutes was tough. I'm only gonna do five minutes tomorrow. You're pulling yourself back from activity and where you should be actually pushing yourself forward. And I'm not saying to go crazy. I'm not saying jump in both feet, try to do full days of work. No, you have to find your 3K. You have to find your 3K. The goal, full time back at work or full cognitive load or whatever your goal may be, consider that your marathon and put that in the future and work your way back to do steps today to get yourself there in a period of time. If you try to go out and run the marathon tomorrow, you will fail. But if you start with the 3K tomorrow, you will be sore. It will kind of suck. You know, you will have symptoms, but that's okay. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of symptom increase. In fact, it's actually possibly beneficial for you to do that, okay? Pulling back from symptoms, and I have these patients come in and be like, I'm on this point system. I'm only allowed to do this much points and this much activity every day. That is completely holding you back from any type of progress whatsoever. You have to find out what your threshold is and then push that barrier slightly every single time. Right? I find out where my exhaustion point is and I try to do one more rep. Right? I try to do 100 more meters on my run and eventually that starts to increase my growth over time. Okay? So when you're talking about neurofatigue, are you suffering neurofatigue because of some sort of brain impairment or are you suffering neurofatigue from simply being deconditioned because you haven't really been using your brain as you used to and now you're trying to go and do the activities you used to be able to do, hang out with friends, social situations, etc., and you feel that you can't or you get symptom increase. Well, you have to start slow and build up to that, okay? So that's the first thing we have to consider. The second thing we have to consider, I think is going to be very interesting to all of you. And this was really the purpose of the talk, but we had to kind of frame it up. Okay, let's talk about physiologically why you could have brain fatigue. There are two brain networks, major brain networks that are working. Okay, and they generally only work one at a time. You have what's called the executive network, and then you have what's called the default mode network. The executive network is focusing on the tasks at hand. The executive network is saying, I am doing a math problem, I am dialed into this math problem, I'm doing an exam, I am dialed into this exam. Right now, I'm talking to all of you, I am not thinking about anything other than what I'm gonna say next. I am 100% dialed into the task that I'm doing. The default mode network is your self-talk. It's, okay, what do I have to get make for dinner tonight? You're in your own mind. It's what's also known as, in the psychological world, as the ego. It's your sense of self. It's your time traveler. It's what allows you to think into the future, to plan ahead, but also to feel anxiety and stress about things that haven't happened in the future. It's also what allows you to look back into the past and feel sadness 
or potentially depression about a current situation that you're you're in or things that have happened to you in the past or even trauma that's been experienced post-traumatic stress that type of th stuff so your self-talk can be very motivating powerful or it can be very detrimental and it can set up blocks and barriers that don't actually exist or things that you may perceive to be barriers okay most of the things we think about and worry about don't actually happen or are not actually real they're fabrications of the default mode network or the ego the sense of self and this is often what comes into um, the mental health aspect of things it's the self-talk okay now both of these networks should not be active at the same time meaning that if I'm doing an executive task like talking to all of you doing my math problem whatever it may be my default mode network should be completely shut off so I'm relying on my executive network now if I'm not doing an executive task and I'm just daydreaming and thinking about whatever else is going on and planning for the future yada yada I'm on my default mode network and they kind of shut each other off, okay? People with concussion, persistent concussion symptoms, but also people with anxiety, people with generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, people with um, chronic pain uh, and stress, chronic stress. When they do studies looking at fMRI, okay, fMRI will look at oxygen signals and oxygen uptake in certain tissues of the brain. And so it can tell which networks and which areas are active based on the amount of oxygen those areas are using and uptaking. Um, so they can see you know, brain activation patterns, what's going on. Now, when they give normal, healthy people a, a task, it's executive network starts focusing on the task, default mode network shuts off, task is over, default mode network comes back on. People with anxiety, stress, persistent concussion symptoms, post-traumatic stress, um, chronic pain, all that type of stuff. When they're doing their executive network task, when they give them a task to do, their default mode network stays active. So they're unable to, to perform the task well. They do poorly on the cognitive task, okay? They're not reacting quickly. They're not able to concentrate on the task itself. They're getting the answers wrong. They're not remembering things appropriately, okay? Because their default mode network is active. You can't perform a task if you have the self-talk coming in and disrupting what you're trying to think about. Not only that, but when you have activation of both networks at the same time, you're burning twice the amount of energy. So your cognitive abilities are gonna suck and you're gonna burn more energy and be drained way quicker than you normally would. Okay? Now, studies recently looking at people with cognitive self-reported cognitive impairments so people that have had that have memory impairments or um, concentration difficulties or things like that they this one study that was there was a couple months ago I'll have to look at what the reference is I can't remember off the top of my head but they they separated the groups and they randomized them to either receive psychological intervention cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive rehab where they're actually like oh you have a memory problem let's work on your memory let's give you memory games and things like that to do concentration games things to improve your concentration or your memory and then this group was getting cognitive behavioral therapy which is strategies around you know problems in thinking the group that had the psychological intervention did much better phone call 
the group that had the psychological intervention did much better, statistically significantly better than the group that actually had cognitive intervention. So why is that? Okay. The purpose of a lot of therapy is to tap into the ego, to control the self-talk. The purpose of meditation is to shut down the ego, shut down the thoughts, clear the mind. The purpose of um, like mindfulness, right? Mindfulness based meditation is focus on what you're doing, focus on your breathing. Because when you're focused on your breathing, you're not focused on the self-talk that's potentially negative and holding you back. So people that are experienced meditators are able to shut this down. People that have chronic stress have an overactive ego default mode network, okay? There's studies going on right now looking at hallucinogenic drugs. Psilocybin, magic mushrooms, LSD, and MDMA. And they're using it on soldiers that come back with post-traumatic stress disorder. And they're using it on people with incurable anxiety. Um, I shouldn't say incurable, but intractable anxiety and depression. Other treatments have failed completely. Other medications have failed completely. And they're doing guided sessions where they have a therapist in a room and they give people a high dose of psilocybin mushrooms and take them through a meditation experience. People with um, cancer patients with end of life anxiety, they're you know obviously fearful and anxious about death. And they'll take them through like a, a psilocybin guided um, therapy session and completely in one session wipe out any anxiety that they had. So these, these studies are showing that in one session you're getting 10 years worth of therapy. And we don't really know why or how it works, but one of the, one of the key um, thoughts or theories is that these drugs actually quiet the default mode network. So again, back to our fMRI studies. FMRI is looking at activation of the brain. Like researchers thought that we would see this crazy ballistic activity going on within the brain everywhere, but actually what they saw was that there was a lot of activity going on in the executive network, but a complete dissolving of the default mode network. So it just completely shut off. So what the theory is, is that this is allowing therapists to completely tap into uh, an undisrupted um, default mode network. It's completely shut down. So you can get really deep on some of this stuff. But it's very interesting that you can get rid of anxiety and get rid of depression and get rid of uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder by quieting down the default mode network. Okay. So this is where mental health concussion recovery becomes so intertwined. You believe that you have memory impairments, concentration difficulties, all these things, but how much of that is inattentiveness? I walked into a room, I can't remember why I'm there. Well, it's not that you can't remember, it's that your self-talk distracted you with some other thoughts that were creeping into your mind, okay? And a lot of patients now are off work, have lost their disability, have, um, you know, they're, 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 don't know what to do for money. They may be stressed financially with bills and all this stuff. And I know that that's a ton of people out there right now. So all of that stress is going to keep your default mode network activated, which then prevents you from focusing on the task at hand, which is your executive network. 
So oftentimes with patients that have this neurofatigue, they will always describe that their concentration, memory, cognitive, all this stuff, but a lot of times it's, it's we need to look at the psychological piece. I often will refer people for therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, uh, to their physician or psychiatrist for medication to try and reduce the anxiety, reduce the self-talk, reduce the default mode network to be able to then focus on the task at hand. And oftentimes that's the one component where patients aren't willing to go there because they believe this is not me, this is not psychological. It is psychological because concussion will do this. Concussion can increase the anxiety, increase the stress, increase the post-traumatic stress, which then activates this default mode network. And we need to find strategies to quiet it and bring it back down so that you're not having two systems working at once, you're able to focus, and you're not burning double the energy that you normally would. So, pretty cool, huh? <laughs> so for anyone out there that's, that's having these issues, I would definitely encourage you to seek therapy, meditation, mindfulness, anything to try and de-stress and quiet the default mode and think one strategy I've been giving, this is like a Tony Robbins thing that he always does and I, mean, I love Tony Robbins. Um, the one thing that he always tells people is that you cannot feel anxious, you cannot feel stressed, you cannot feel any negative type of emotion when you're also feeling gratitude. So one thing that he'll get people to do is if you focus on things you're grateful for, you're immediately quieting the anxiety, stress, things that are happening in the default mode network. Okay, I'm stressed about my job, which is preventing me from thinking straight. It's all I can think about it. I'm up at night because I can't shut my mind off and I'm spinning and spinning and spinning. So I get a shitty sleep. I wake up in the morning feeling like shit. I'm fatigued. I'm drowsy. All these things. Okay. But if you can then change that thinking into what are three things that I feel absolutely grateful for. Okay. That can quiet things down and potentially just reframe how you think about stuff. So I hope this was motivational for people. I hope that this is able to help you in your journey to recovery. Um, I think this is a major barrier for most concussion patients and they're not willing to accept it. They think that if somebody says psychological that we believe that it's all in your head or that you're fabricating or making up, that is not the case. This is obviously very real. This is a true issue. But we, know, we need to just develop strategies and how to deal with it to quiet it down because if we can quiet it down, there goes our neurofatigue, there goes our positive thinking, there goes our ability to execute and do tasks without being distracted. Okay? Questions? One question here. One question here. Okay. Anyone watching, I'm going to turn this over now to Concussion Doc. So anyone who's on either channels, come to Concussion Doc. I'll answer the questions. Uh, anyone listening on podcasts, watching on YouTube, all that stuff, uh, you can feel free to comment, leave questions, ask questions. Uh, feel free to leave us reviews as well if, if you're enjoying the content, share it with friends, all that stuff. Um, until next time, see you guys later. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.